So we've been this course looking at the wisdom part of the path. Wisdom arises as a view always in the same way that ignorance arises as a view, a perspective that the mind, because of its conditioning, takes up. We take up the view of being a troubled person, we live inside that prison, or we take up the view that it's all happening on its own, and feel the relative space, spaciousness, freedom of that view, or whatever open view you might experience from time to time. And the more we see that, the more we realize that we can, I mean, the the ultimate transformation is about uh, purification of the view. But the world exists on many different frequencies, gross frequencies, more subtle frequencies. And we can affect the subtle by working with the gross in the same way the subtle affects the gross. So we can work with thought like we did tonight with the loving-kindness practice. We can intentionally make the mind think some thoughts on loving-kindness. And maybe, perhaps, I drove a few of you crazy by telling you what to think for the last 30 minutes. You know, and, you know, ideally, it is usually easier to have, to direct your own thoughts, but it's also easier to decide you don't need to think those thoughts and you're going to think about some other thoughts that aren't so skillful. So it's a real training where making the mind think some thoughts, but it's based on a sliver of right view that is sort of knows that although these thoughts feel forced or artificial, contrived maybe, but there's some sliver of understanding that these views, if I can just break through the crust, you know, the idea that I'm forcing or the idea that I'm trying to make something happen, I might actually realize that these thoughts aim the mind towards something that's quite natural. So this upwelling of the heart is not constructed. The thought, you know, may my love continue, may it increase, may it never end, that thought may be constructed, but the actual experiencing of a goodness or a upwelling of love or upwelling of whatever you want to call that good feeling that's not constructed. And so the direction, the contemplation is something we need to take up. And this is something we want to do. I encourage you you all to experiment this week so that next week when we have small groups, you can talk about um, how we can use contemplation to change reality. You know, it is very much a mind-created world. As it said, you know, in that passage in the Dhammapada, the mind, thought, intention is the forerunner of all things. Think and act in this way, and trouble follows us. Think in another way, and happiness follows us, like a never departing shadow, as it goes in the, in the Dhammapada, this collection of verses. So, what are we setting in motion? I mean, it would be so interesting if every day somebody does a statistical analysis of the underlying intentions that were reinforced or thought during the day. You know, we get this list, greed, anger, you know, and non-greed, renunciation, thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of letting go, thoughts of generosity, non-aversion, you know, thoughts of kindness, thoughts of non-harming. And we just had it, I mean, wouldn't that be interesting? You know, 30%, 70, 1%, 1%. Oh, can, does it, the public have access? Yeah, I thought we'll be able to hack Google, but. <laughs> no, it, it's true. There's a lot of, nowadays, because the internet is so everywhere, 
we learn a lot about our minds by looking at what people search for on the internet and how deluded we are <laughs> thinking that happiness will be certain places so um so are we willing to take up that training you know to pick up a contemplation and really seek we don't like it because it actually reveals to us how impersonal it all is you know it's like we don't want to have a very deeply beautiful even transcendent experience just because we intended to because it it contradicts a deep sense that i feel this way because my life is this way right and then here on a cold monday night we do this and i don't know if this is true for any of you but maybe some of you had a really beautiful mind state by the end of the guided meditation and then it's disconcerting like i mean for one thing it's a little shocking like why don't i do this all the time you know what have i been doing <laughs> like why not live in that place and it and it's just but i'm not happy you know because and we have our reasons of course so or the world is this way so we shouldn't be or whatever so it's just an interesting thing to play with and i would play with the different intentions like like just contemplating the contentedness and here's the thing i've been saying this with the mindfulness of breathing instructions too it really matters what we pay attention to so we could be in this room tonight and we could train the mind to just think about what we want what we think would make it make us happy like if it were a little warmer in the room or if we had a nice shawl like somebody has or we had a nice this or that or whatever it might be or this would be harder of course but we could actively look at content- the experience of contentment we could notice that the pants i'm wearing are good enough i feel okay about the pants that i'm wearing i feel okay about the choice to be here tonight i can feel content about my body i can be discontent but i can also be content about it and we can just keep one moment after another noticing this is good enough i'm okay with this i'm not like i'm trying to be okay with but i'm in this moment i can see that i am okay with this i am okay with this and then we'll notice that that experience will get stronger and stronger because that's what we're contemplating that's what we're perceiving it becomes then over time the habit of the mind to see with loving kindness or to see with renunciation or contentedness or more generous place or non-harming like this commitment to not harming and like everything we touch we shut the car door we have that attitude of non-harming it's just you know we shut the light off and where you don't need it with this attitude of non-harming we put our clothes on with the attitude of non-harming i joked about this in the past like when we're brushing our teeth it can feel like there's a little war going on between you know the brush and the teeth it doesn't have to be that way and your brush will last longer and your gums and teeth will last longer that's the amazing thing it always strikes me like how is that possible when the dentist says or the hygienist says you know you're wearing down your teeth because <laughs> you're brushing too hard i didn't know that was possible i mean i knew that some people grind their teeth and things like that but that you can actually wear out your teeth <laughs> by brushing them okay good to know so these these themes you know and they're just three you know harmlessness non-cruelty so contemplating like whatever we're doing doing with the attitude of non-harming non non not being cruel or coming at move, connecting with with a sense of goodwill wishing well that upwelling that wishing well or contentedness recognizing there is a way to be content it's just a matter of what we pay attention to in that moment 
what we're missing, what would make the moment, what we think would make the moment better. Because we could always think of something that we think would make the moment better. But we don't have to think of that. We can think about something else. Drop by drop, the water pot is filled. Likewise, the wise person gathering little by little fills oneself with good. Right? Drop by drop, the water pot is filled. Likewise, the wise person gathering little by little fills oneself with good. I sent out today the uh, chapter um, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's book on uh, right intention. Earlier in the course, uh, somebody sent that uh, the chapter on right view out, so this is just the next chapter. And at the last page of that, or the last, close to the last page, if not on the last page, he says, to, de- to develop the intention of renunciation, we have to contemplate the suffering tied up with the quest for worldly enjoyment. To develop the intention of goodwill, we have to consider how all beings desire happiness. To develop the intention of harmlessness, we have to consider how all beings wish to be free from suffering. The unwholesome thought is like a rotten peg lodged in the mind. Right? This is this famous simile the Buddha used talking about thought substitution. And again, it seems like, you know, if everything's inherently free the way it is, why do I need to intervene and push one thought away? It's a pretty, um, I don't know, aggressive, but it's, you know, it's a really potent intervention to knock out the rotten peg by pounding in a nice solid peg. And, but that's exactly what he's saying, that this is a, a relevant strategy. And it, it's like a rewiring of the mind and it changes the confidence. You know, and the way that we often have confidence in that our mind is no good, we can have confidence in the goodness of our mind, the potential to have and abide in really expanded, beautiful states. So again, he says, the unwholesome thought is like a rotten peg lodged in the mind. The wholesome thought is like a new peg suitable to replace it. The actual contemplation functions as the hammer used to drive out the old peg with the new one. The work of driving the new peg is practice, practicing again and again, as often as is necessary to reach success. The Buddha gives us his assurance that the victory can be achieved. He says that whatever one reflects upon frequently becomes the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks sensual, hostile, or harmful thoughts, desire, ill will, and harmfulness will become the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks the opposite way, renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness becomes the inclination of the mind. The direction we take always comes back to ourselves, to the intentions we generate moment by moment in the course of our lives. Some of you, I think maybe Patrice and a few of you were around back when Ruth Dennison uh, taught here in Minnesota. We brought, TCVC brought her out a couple of years. Did you go on those retreats, Steve? And uh, she's dying now. She's in the last days of her life. Maybe she's even passed away. I, I didn't get that message, but I did get a message from the executive director at IMS saying that she's in the last days of her life. A wonderful teacher, really a woman who was not afraid to be who she was in the fullest sense. And, uh, but she has a great line, something like, darling, you don't get away with nothing. So whatever we set in motion with our intentions, like whatever intentions, motivations, aspirations, resolves, thoughts that fill the mind during the days, our days, then of course that becomes the inclination of the mind. And it's appropriate to be a little frightened by that. I mean, that's, that's the point. That, the Buddha would probably call that a wholesome fear. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to be a little bit more attentive to what the mind spends its time doing. And I'm going to more actively take a different peg to push out that peg and see directly, experience directly the effect of doing that work. Oh. 
that works. This is from this great Indian poet and scholar, Rabindranath Tagore. Most people believe their mind to be a mirror more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of them and not realizing, on the contrary, that the fact that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. So it would be interesting to, like, both for the small group, but just for our own sake, to see what can be set in motion and to get a clearer sense of what are the advantages of doing our best to set in motion the mind, like feeding the mind stream, strengthening the mind stream in the direction of loving kindness, harmlessness, non-cruelty, and generosity. What kind of person, like in a week's time, what kind of person can we become? You know, in a month's time, in a year's time, in a decade's time, in three or four lifetimes worth of work. Now, who knows really about this thing, you know, called death and rebirth? We don't. I don't. Maybe some of you do, but I don't know. But, but I know enough maybe to have an open mind, like I know that I don't know. I have a lot of confidence in that. So I have a lot of confidence that I don't know that it just ends at the time of the body's death, that the mind ends when the body dies. I don't know that. I have no reason to believe that any more than I have, well, I have some reasons to believe that it continues, but but basically I don't know. So I keep an open mind. And it's like, in the same way that people, like we've been talking, Corey and I have been talking about uh, slowly bringing some new hardwoods into the forest that is at the our retreat property, so that, not that I'll ever see it in this existence, but, you know, 100, 200 years out, we'd have a more diverse, beautiful forest, right? Not just a plantation of pines and, you know, a few species. In the same way, we can uh, set something in motion that will be beautiful. Like even if you don't buy into Nibbana or full liberation or you don't buy into future lives, but what we definitely know is even if you know you have a very materialist view of things, still the way my mind is, I know affects other people. And so... Even if we're not going to be reborn, the mind doesn't continue in some way. My mind, what intentions I'm cultivating and expressing in my actions in the world, they're definitely contributing to the soup that we're all in. And that soup is affecting the next generation, and they're going to affect the next generation, and on and on. So even if you don't want to buy in or keep an open mind about rebirth, it really matters what kind of mind we're cultivating. And view, like I'd mentioned, I talked last week, view leads to thought, right? Whatever belief or underlying perspective or view, then that's expressed as intention, thought, resolve, aspiration, motivation. Whatever that we have, that leads to actions in the world. And then those actions when acted in that way over and over again, it hardens into what we'd say, who I am, my personality, my disposition. And anybody who's tried, like all of us have, to change habit, we know it's not that easy. If we're, you know, in the habit of, you know, needing milk and cookies before we go to bed, and we've done that, most nights for decades, it's a really hard habit to break, even something that simple. It's like, I can't sleep. I didn't get my cookies and milk. Or whatever it is for you or for me. You know, all these sort of things that have become like, that's just how it has to be. And we see it, not so much in our own life, but we see other people, like when we step into their personal life, we maybe visit them at home, or we travel with them a little bit, so we see their routines, and you can really get a sense how people can get imprisoned in their routines. 
And it can be a little like scary, like we don't even want to be around them. But we're like them. <laughs> it's just that we don't notice our routines are different, you know, whatever they might be like. You know, just the, it could be in the opposite direction, like not having cookies and milk, you know, this austere idea of who we are. That we couldn't handle the comfort of milk and cookies. <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to keep plowing ahead, but feel free to bring up comments or questions as you do, as you have them rather. But it might be good just to get a clearer sense how this is, to take a moment to reflect, like to bring to mind, if you can, sometime that recently, you know, in the last few days maybe, that seemed relatively happy for you. Mind, heart, body was relatively light, expansive, joyful. And kind of go both directions, like, like what view might have been operating, what thoughts, what were the intentions, the motivations that existed in that happy moment, what sort of actions did you see yourself doing, acting out words you said, actions, deeds you did. So to just get a sense of that integrity between view, intention, and action. And so that's becomes our reality, you know, that integrity between those three, just different frequencies. And then the other thing to do, and then might be nice to hear from a few of you, um, like a difficult time, you've been in a funk, really angry, really whatever, feeling needy, feeling... Um, not being taken care of, a difficult time. See if you can sense, if you can intuit the view, the underlying view in the mind, perspective through which you were interpreting your life, the kinds of thoughts that were repeated, intentions, dispositions that got activated, motivations that you felt or saw, and what you did or didn't do. Remember, no action is also action. Sitting on the couch is an action. <laughs> right? It's just the same as calling someone on the phone. So anybody have a, a reflection about that integrity between understanding, intention, and action, and how that becomes can become sort of a beautiful abiding, if it's wholesome, or a terrible prison, prison if it's unwholesome. Like really being imprisoned by the view, by the intentions, by the actions. And of course, when we're caught in an unwholesome sort of set, then the unwholesome actions tend to create the world around us, like how people are treating us, in a way that confirms our view, that everybody's out to get me, for example, or nobody loves me. Sort of becomes self-fulfilling. Yeah, Andy. Not, not really, no. I mean, it's related, but rain, recognize, accept, be interested, non-attachment, realize non-attachment with it. Yeah, Steve. <laughs> and very mindful of your misery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in a way, you know, with that retreat mind, the prisons, which is probably good. They get, they're so real. They're seen so vividly when we're on retreat because the mind's more sensitive and it has more energy. So it's better at creating the prison. You know, like the integrity has more integrity. We really get locked in when we're locked in. And then hopefully we see it like it sounds like you did. But it's amazing, like Steve, who's been practicing for 24 years or whatever now, you know, you can see it, but that doesn't mean it's going to go away. So part of the practice is knowing the mind is imprisoned when it's imprisoned and being patient. Because we do two things when we realize that the mind is being unskillful. One is we indulge in it so we feel justified in being angry and in being in that prison of anger. And the other is we feel really stupid or we hate ourselves for being in the anger. Which is just, of course, more of the same. So 
it's actually not easy to not do either of those two things, to act it out, to indulge in it, or to hate ourselves because we're, we know better. I shouldn't be angry, you know. Even if she is being irresponsible, there's no reason for me to be angry. So stop it. <laughs> you know, which is so easy to fall into some version of that. And to, it's like, the only thing that works is to meet this being in the prison with a good, wholesome intention, right? We may not be able to bring up a, an authentic right view, just stuff happening. But what we can do is, what's that phrase, we fake it till we make it. So you, we bring up loving kindness, or we bring up the thought, the resolve of renunciation, to let go of the need for help. Like, to let go of being immune to getting a, a cold, or being, you know, um, safe from getting the cold. Like, to inhabit the experience of being vulnerable to getting sick. So, we can take up these, even if we don't, even if we don't have the right perspective behind the intention, but our previous experience has given us faith that these intentions are trustworthy. So we just bring them in. And we might find that thinking in that way, thinking in the way of renunciation, the way of goodwill, the way of harmlessness, actually then, like a sympathetic vibration, brings the right view into view. So this is the kind of experimentation I think the Buddha is inviting us not to feel like we can't play with the situation. There's a way to bring right view back. And it's better, it's better to do it by bringing, uh, to sort of operate or to intervene at the level we're at, which is thought. Because right view, it's like you can't fake right view. But you can fake intention. You can make your mind do something in the same way physically we can make something, make ourselves do something physically we don't want to do. It's a little harder with our mind to think something we don't want to think or to think something we're not inclined to think, maybe is the more accurate way to say it. But we can do it. But we can't so much do that. When when you have a lot of confidence and freedom, then you can do it. You can go right from being caught. Maybe some of you have had this experience in prison with some sort of nicely integrated view, you know, wrong view, wrong intention, wrong action. So there you are in prison. And then in a moment, you recognize you're in prison. And then because of the confidence, the sort of momentum in your practice in that moment, you can go right from there to freedom, to sort of the whole thing imploding or evaporating. And there's nobody who has a problem with anything. And that's like going right to right view. But that that's when momentum, there's a lot of momentum. So when there's very little momentum, all we can do is do our best to refrain from acting out the wrong intention. So it's like we're keeping ourselves from hitting back or whatever, you know, saying something that's unskillful. We're just practicing. As a spiritual person, we're, the only way we can practice is restraining ourselves from doing something that is going to have harmful implications. When we have some momentum, we can do that thought substitution thing because we have some confidence that there's a different way to be. And when we have a lot of momentum, we just put it down. We see it and we see it's not so. And so it just, and it's not even that we put it down. It's the seeing that it's not so that makes the prison that really wasn't there like we thought it was there go away. It never really was a prison. That's sort of what right view reveals. Oh, it's just a bunch of thought and feeling. And now it's just thought and feeling being known. When it wasn't being known with wisdom, then it was a prison. As soon as wisdom sees it, it's just thought and feeling being known. And it's not a problem. See, Caleb, did you have uh, something to share? Yeah, yeah. And it's really good to have that experience because your view of being introverted may shift now, like where maybe it was seen as just, well, that's just who I am. You might see that it's 
like it's tainted with fear and aversion, right? So then you may not be able to, because of its momentum, just drop it, but you won't sort of casually accept it as just the way it is. It's like you'll see this isn't helpful. The, this identification with the fear of social engage, engagement or whatever it might be. Yeah. It's sort of, it's interesting to, um, actually not know who the personality is. Like to really have a more open mind. I mean, the first step, of course, is just getting to know the personality, like know how, like, it tends to fall back into these particular patterns over and over again. And just starting to recognize that, but now in a conscious way. So we always did it, but now we're aware that this is who I am, this is how I am in this situation. You know, these are the patterns, the emotional patterns. And then, not to stop there, but then to see that uh, how that construct, you know, how the personalities constructed those patterns, they're much more flexible or nimble or tenuous than we might think. Like the whole thing can change, especially on the level of view. You know, when we're just working on the level of restraint, it feels like this thing is like the Titanic. It has so much momentum, the personality. You know, it's just so hard to keep it from doing what it's inclined to do. And mostly we get defeated. The habit energy is going one way. We're trying to stop it maybe a little bit, but mostly not. But then we start working on the level of thought and we start to see how nimble it is, like that it's not that fixed at all. And then on the level of right view, it's like really like all kinds of things could happen. You know, who we are, how we are in a in a particular situation. It's really open. Doesn't mean we'll change the personality, but it 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 what's revealed is that it doesn't have to be this way. But it doesn't have to not be this way either. Right? So all we really need to tease out is what's setting emotion suffering. But still we can see that it isn't much of anything. It's just a much of habits. Yeah. C D and then Sharon. Yeah. And I bet you did do some important work there. And it wouldn't have been bad to move, you know, because it's really about motivation. Like if the motivation to move came out of a wave of compassion that the mind trusted and that sort of carried you into the activity of moving from one place to another, I don't see any harm in that. And now I'm not saying this happened, but if the, if the motivation to stay was basically the mind not identifying with the appropriate fear. Like, it may be that the smell, the chemicals, that it might be actually doing some damage to the mind or body, right? So, if if the intention is the practice of acceptance, like, this would be a kind of renunciation, like the intention of renunciation, like, I'm never completely safe, this is just the current insult, the current, you know, wildness of my existence is expressing itself now as the perfume that is in my environment. And I'm going to practice renouncing, always seeking safety, always having to seek safety. So to whatever degree that you practice non-fear, that's a, that's a useful thing because that's a self-centered activity. Now it doesn't mean that at times, we're going to do things that protect the system, the mind-body system. But we don't want to be dependent on always having to protect the system, the mind-body system, right? Because we won't always be able to do that, for one. And sometimes to do that causes other people to be harmed, right? So, like, uh, maybe it's a nice skill to have to accept... I mean, this is when we're, we can do this unconsciously, damage of life, but to consciously allow an insult in, something that actually is degrading life to some degree, is very interesting thing to do. Like for people who have, who've, um, become really careful about eating good food, 
And then for whatever reason, you go someplace. Like when I was in Burma and other people who've been in Asia know this, like especially if you're not in places where there are a lot of Westerners, the food can be <laughs> not so good. I was a monk there in Burma for five months and every once in a while, not that often, just a handful of times during the five months, I'd have to be involved in these sort of community ritual things. And one is a time of year where the lay community donates oil, cooking oil, to the monasteries so that they can prepare their food. And so there's this long line of people, just throng, tons and tons of people on both sides, and you're walking with your bowl, and families are putting a little cooking oil into your bowl. Some are pouring some in, some are just putting a little in. And uh, <laughs> it's on this sort of stone that gets very slippery because people are missing. Now, the, the thing I wanted to mention is, first of all, the best of the sort of the more wealthy families, they're giving cooking oil, you know, that's not good cooking oil, just on our standards. But then, of course, not not many of the families have that much money. So a lot of the families are giving cooking oil that has been used a long time, right? And some of those families were giving cooking oil, I'm not kidding, that were in car oil plastic containers, <laughs> putting it in. And uh, I, I mean, I was, I'm assuming it was actual cooking oil and not, but just that, that they would be using these plastic containers that had motor oil in them was a little astounding to me. And, you know, it begs the question, eating at the monastery every day for five months, you know, what is in this food? And you don't know what's in the food. You just eat it. And to kind of, and then to be really mindful and just to do that day in, day out. And, you know, we have a lot of examples, living in a city and breathing the air and being really conscious, you know, or walking into an environment like uh, C.D. was talking about, where it's, you know, there's some scent or some whatever that you can tell is affecting your mind, at least as much as you can tell. Yeah, Mary. Yeah. Well, renunciation. I mean, because... What renunciation actually is in the end is um, I'm going to take care of myself when I can, when it doesn't harm others, but it's in light of knowing that I, I won't ultimately be able to take care of this life, right? Because I'm not in control and things will take their natural course. And so when it isn't appropriate to do something to take care of ourselves for whatever reason. We don't want to offend the host. I was, the last day, uh, I went on alms round, one of my, one of the last days there, and we, uh, I was with another monk, and we went into uh, this very, um, simple structure where this woman lived with her family. You know, it was just kind of open on one side, and, and, uh, they, I got served a cup of tea, and there was a mosquito that had blood in it in the tea. <laughs> and, you know, just sort of like, and you know, and she has no money. And just getting tea, like, she had to, when uh, we arrived, she had to send one of her sons out, like give the son some money to go get. She didn't really have the supplies there to take, to sort of serve us tea and a couple biscuits or something like that. So it was like one of those things, like, do you drink tea that has blood in it, you know, in a place where, who knows, and uh, I did, I did sip some, <laughs> but I didn't drink at all, <laughs> but it, it's just those things, and it's like a renunciation, like, I accept this risk, I accept, I'm not going to get through this thing alive, and uh, in this moment, you know, given everything that's at play, this seems like the skillful thing to do. And I'm going to renounce the fact that I don't know, and I don't even know the consequences. So we can renounce certainty. We cannot renounce the need to survive, which is just putting ourselves in line with the reality of death. So we can renounce all of those things that we don't really own anyway. You know, we don't really have security in the way that we imagine. So when we're renouncing, we're actually coming more in line with the nature, the sort of ultimate nature of insecurity. 
I'm going to go. Sharon, did you have a thought you wanted to share? Maybe a little bit louder for folks. And I'm guessing when you said that it was just, when you had that understanding that it was just the ego, that's where you were looking at your actions, you were looking at what was going on in your mind, and then the mind understood the view, right? Self-view. There was a self-view there, and that was related to the thoughts and related to the action and all that. And when you saw that, then the mind felt inspired to intervene, right? And you intervene by bringing in loving kindness in some fashion. And then that gets integrated in. So that's the thing that we want to play with. And to really start getting a sense of the advantages and the disadvantages of the, you know, what's like in terms of intention. Because this is a place we can normally operate. It's not really gross. It's like much more efficient than operating on the level of restraint. Where, where there's not much understanding. We're just, all we know is that hitting and yelling and trying to hurt each other with words isn't good. I mean, that's a, it's good to know that, but if that's all the understanding we have, it's not easy to become a happy person. But if we have a deeper understanding about the difference between wholesome intentions in the mind and unwholesome, this is a list we should know well, not just intellectually, but like what that looks like. Greed, anger, and delusion. Delusion means not understanding what's going on. And often the way delusion looks in the moment is thinking we know what's going on. When you're certain, chances are delusion is operating. So greed, anger, and delusion. And then the opposite would be, it's really, because the opposite of delusion is right view. So that's why it's not one of the intentions, because it sort of exists on a more refined level. Non-delusion is seeing clearly, which is the same as right view. So the three intentions are really non-greed, which is the intention of renunciation or generosity or contentedness, and non-aversion, which has these two qualities of goodwill, sort of the positive upwelling part, and non-harming, which is a real commitment to not adding more suffering to ourselves or to others. Like really seeing that that, I don't want to add suffering to myself or others. And to really start seeing the advantages and the disadvantages and advantages of these two sets of unwholesome and wholesome intentions. Because it's empowering. I mean, that it, that much is quite empowering because what stops us then from bringing in a right intention? However feeble our attempt might be, at least we're not helpless. Because a lot of the time, you know, when things are really intense for us, we feel a little helpless. Like, I've just got to hang in there and then hopefully things will change. And it's like our strategy is this restraint. I'm just going to hang in there and not make too much of a mess. And it would be nice to have a more subtle intervention available, which is, well, how could I possibly, in this situation, how could the mind possibly bring in right view, contemplate right view. In what way could the mind contemplate some view, some idea, some thought of renunciation or generosity or contentedness? How could this mind contemplate goodwill in some fashion or contemplate non-harming? In what way would a thought like that make sense or work in this situation? And this would be especially interesting in really sticky places. Did you have your hand up? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's interesting in the way you describe that, Patrice, is that you get the sense, it just, uh, just in the background of how you, you shared your situation or your story, that <clears throat> this sort of deepening where, um, you see that this work, which on the surface feel, you know, you could interpret somebody saying something like Patrice said as like a do-gooder. You know, like, I know I shouldn't be snarky. I know I should. But if you just listen, you sense that 
what's really happening in the mind is this transformation of view using the uh, the work on the level of intention to purify view from wrong view to right view from a self view to non self view because self is very much tied up in being snarky right that's that's the expression of self view so to recreate the momentum in the mind so that the mind is now willing to do that and willing to really inhabit like it's one thing to have the thought at first you have to fake it but when it's more than just the thought but the that there's that integration that means that view is there like the snarky one is not self and the thing about love now you can have love with a self but it's always a contaminant to self, or to love. You know, it's like any sort of self and love is like in the way of the pleasure of it. So there's a, the thing about goodwill is it will tease out self. It's not necessary. You don't need self-view to be loving. And, you know, in the later tradition in the commentaries, Attachment, any kind of selfing is the enemy of, the near enemy of metta, loving kindness. Thanks for that, Patrice. Nice to hear. Any other thoughts? There's a few minutes left before we end tonight. Are there examples of seeing the advantages and disadvantages or seeing what's in the way? Like examples like Patrice, what is in the way of putting another, that, you know, that image, inserting a peg, so inserting the view or the thought, rather, of renunciation or inserting the thought of goodwill, inserting a thought of non-harming. What is that? What's that that gets in the way of us operating or playing in this way? Yeah, Yeah. What is it about the drama like, let's see if we can all bring, just in the last minute, uh, bring to mind something that might happen for us tomorrow or tonight. You know, some drama, whatever it is, some unresolved issue with the person you live with, something at work, something about your health, something you're really looking forward to, really feel you deserve or really grateful, wanting it to happen. Milk and cookies, popcorn, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, particular entertainment. So we feel that, and then whatever way that we might want to begin to play with right intention with that, you know, what's the resistance to bringing right intention into that? Like I'll just give an example, and then this would be great for the small groups. But you know, one of the things, like I have a, a deep pervading habit, as I think a lot of us do, this sort of oh poor me sort of thing. Part of it maybe stems all the way back from being the middle of seven kids and who knows what, having parents that were stressed out by life and they were good people but not that engaged as parents and, you know, oh poor Mark. <laughs> I mean, it was such a, as things go, such a privileged upbringing, but still, oh, poor Mark. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But anyway, so its current manifestation is sort of like, you know, feeling a little busy, having a lot to do, you know, things that aren't getting done that I want to get done, or not being able to play in the way I want to play, or whatever. So, oh, poor Mark. And um, so for me, it's like uh, there's this the dynamic like of inserting that peg of renunciation, like like just submitting to my life as it is, as imperfect as it is, and you know, overwhelming in in the mild ways that it is overwhelming, and all of that stuff. You know, that sense of submission to it is so liberating. And the sense of inhabiting the oh poor me and always 
like feeling obliged to have a plan where I'm going to finally fix my life and I'm going to, you know, live in a balanced way and eat the right way and exercise appropriately and sit, you know, I used to sit for this many hours a day and now I'm only, you know, and all these sort of things. And that whole, it's so nice to put that down and it's so hellish to inhabit it. So for me, that's that dynamic of like realizing I can, it's a little bit like, you know, what you were bringing up, Mary, of like submitting to something that's relatively speaking unhealthy, but it's really healthy to submit to it. It doesn't mean it's the perfect life for me, but it's the life I'm living. And so if I'm going to be living that life, I should submit to it because the worst thing is to be living that way and to think it's wrong or that I'm bad, or I should hate it, or something like that. So, we'll have small groups next week, and we'll talk a little bit more about harmlessness as one of the one of the uh, intentions, maybe dig into that a little bit more. But I recommend Bhikkhu Bodhi, who, who writes in a, a formal way, but it's very thorough, so it's a, I forget how many pages, but not that many, maybe ten pages. I recommend you take a look at it. You might find it quite useful. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Allowing there to be an intention of renunciation, of just letting the moment be good enough. Perhaps a resonant quality of love for all our friends here, for all beings, all those in difficult circumstances. And a great resolve as we leave to not harm, to practice not harming. Nice to be together tonight, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.